Well, if you have a Bible, uh, take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're continuing our lifelong study of the book of 1 Corinthians. At least that's what it feels like, but uh, it's good stuff. And while you're turning there, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege it is on weekends to come together to be with people that we love and care for and appreciate. Lord, to share life together and encourage one another in our walk with you. To worship you, Jesus, as our supreme treasure in all of our life. And then to hear from your word. And and we ask you today, once again, to speak to us. Lord, it, it so fills our hearts with joy when you speak to our hearts through your word. And so we pray that our hearts are fertile soil today to receive the word. And uh, transform us, change us a little bit more today into your holy image. We would pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you would agree that it's just wise to learn from others' mistakes? Yes? Good idea? Rather than have to learn it yourself. You know, it's fall and it's almost uh, homecoming time for the high school. And for our family every year, we're always reminded of the homecoming night escapades of our oldest son from several years ago. And I joke with him about it now. But, and I tell him, you know, there are some important lessons that other would-be streakers could learn from your mess-ups <laughs> that night. Like, if you plan on streaking across a football field in front of 5,000 of your friends and neighbors, probably best to go ahead and put your ski mask on in the bathroom so that you don't make it super easy for people to identify you as you're running across the football field. And if you choose to take the north to south route across the field in your streaking and then you hop the chain link fence, remember that the Gahanna police station is like right there, (laughs) thus making it very easy, removing any convenience for them to haul your semi-naked body in and book you. Another lesson, if in your exiting the field, you almost knock over the vice principal, that doesn't bode well for you either when it comes to your disciplinary hearing later. Probably a good idea to stash an extra set of clothes in some bushes somewhere on the south side of the field so when your parents come and pick you up and you're sitting in the back of the police cruiser, you're not shivering to death with the leather seats there against your flesh. And if your other buddies who had planned to do this with you all opt out just moments before, you might want to find out why and see if you should give that some consideration as well. Always wise to learn from others' mistakes. I did ask his permission to use that today, so he said, he said have at it. <laughs> have some fun at my expense. Well, learning from others' mistakes, that's what we're going to be doing together today. Learning from the example of an entire nation who, after being set free from bondage, failed to make a clean break from the old life and instead allowed themselves to get sucked back into the old activities and the old influences, and they ended up paying a dear price for it. If you have a, a worship folder there, you can pull the study outline out of there, and I have the main point of the sermon written out for you, so you can't miss it. Here it is, failing to make a clean break from the old life can be hazardous to your health. If you're a Christian today and you're here and you're, you're kind of smug in your spirituality and you think that you can go back and flirt with the old BC life, the old before Christ life, 
dabble around in the old activities and influences without any cost to yourself, then I would say you need to think again. So you could title this message, The Dangers of Flirting, or The Dangers of Dabbling, or The Danger of Being Spiritually Smug. There's an axiom that is stated very clearly by Paul in chapter 10 and verse 12. Maybe you've heard this before. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Maybe you've heard it put this way, another verse of Scripture. Pride goes before a fall, doesn't it? And we're going to learn some important lessons from the negative example of an entire generation of people in the Bible who failed to guard against spiritual smugness and they started flirting with the old idols again and longing for the old way of life, and they ended up being disqualified from entering the promised land that God had prepared for them. Now, we've been studying Corinthians, and we're in a a section, chapter 8 through 11, where Paul is sharing his insights on this matter of having spiritual freedom in Christ. And we we have spiritual freedom, right? But it's possible to misuse or abuse our spiritual freedom. And in Corinth, in that church, there were some smug, proud believers in that church who felt that in Christ they had the freedom to go back into the idol temples that they used to attend and to participate in some feasts and festivals that were held there and eat the meat that was served that had been offered to idols and hang out with their old friends and somehow ignore the sexual activity that would have been going on all around them during those feasts, that they could go to those parties again like they used to, and it would be okay that they could handle it. After all, they had freedom in Christ. In chapter 8, Paul tells them, yes, you do have freedom in Christ, but don't let your freedom be a stumbling block to others. Think about how your choices in these gray area matters might affect a weaker brother or a weaker sister. Think about that. Then in chapter 9, he says, also think about how this is going to affect your testimony with lost people, with the unsaved people in your world, in your life. Is it going to help or hinder your witness, your usefulness to Christ in winning others to the gospel? Think about that, too. And then now in chapter 10, he says, look, don't only think about, you know, how your choices are going to affect other believers and affect your testimony to lost people, but think about how your choices in gray area matters are going to affect you, how they're going to affect you. Are you absolutely sure that you won't slide back into the old life if you take that first step? Are you sure you can handle it without your affections being drawn away from Christ, without bowing down to some of those old idols that used to capture your heart? And so Paul's going to say, if if you do slide back into the old life, you might end up being disqualified from usefulness to Christ. And that was something we saw last week that Paul himself had a very healthy fear of. I don't want to be disqualified in my race. And so to make his point, he recalls to the minds of his readers a story from the life of God's people in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, the children of Israel. And he wants the Corinthians and us, to learn from their huge mistakes. And so beginning in verse 1, we have a devastating story of disqualification. Here's how he begins it. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now let's try to understand what Paul's saying here. A very curious passage Obviously, when you look at this, you realize that he is hearkening back to the story in the Old Testament of the Exodus, isn't he? Where God's chosen people were liberated from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. Through the leadership of their leader, whose name was? Moses, great leader. And God delivered them and set them out on a journey into the wilderness that would ultimately lead them to the promised land in Canaan. And Paul says... You need to understand that the children of Israel had great spiritual, supernatural privileges and advantages. All of them did. And he mentions several. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. You know what that refers to? That cloud that God came in and guided his people through the desert. It says it was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it hovered over the camp for a season and then it would lift and move and the people would pack up camp and... That was the way God directed them on their journey. And so he says they were blessed to have that, God's supernatural direction. Not only that, it says all passed through the sea. Of course, that's the reference to them walking on dry land through the Red Sea. And then as Pharaoh's army was pursuing them, the waves crashed in over them and destroyed Israel's enemies. And they were blessed with a great deliverance, a supernatural deliverance from God. And then he says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And this is a very curious phrase. Many scholars believe that the word baptized here doesn't refer to water baptism, but to the way that those two million strong people were identified with their supernaturally empowered leader, Moses. And that's what baptism does, by the way. It identifies you with Jesus Christ, unites you, symbolically with him. And so Paul's using the word baptized here to describe the fact that these two million people were blessed to have this great leader, Moses, one of the greatest human leaders in all of human history, and they were united with him and identified with him through the miraculous things that they experienced together. He says they were blessed through that. And then he talks about them eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink. You know what that refers to? Spiritual food is that manna that God supplied supernaturally from heaven, their daily bread every day, their sustenance, their nourishment in their journeys through the wilderness. And the spiritual drink refers to the water that God supernaturally provided for them to quench their thirst in the desert through the rock. So God's guidance, God's deliverance, his supernatural provision, great leader, lots of advantages and privileges for this group of people. And then finally, he says, God's presence with them. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. A very, another very curious, intriguing phrase. It gets cleared up when you discover that there was a Jewish legend that was still popular in Paul's day, been around for a while, that the rock that Moses struck in the desert, he struck the rock and water flowed out and provided uh, quenching for the thirst of the people. The legend held it that that rock followed the Israelites all the way through their journeys for 40 years. I guess it was the original rock that rolled. 
and followed them. And it was a legend, and Paul just kind of goes with it and says there really was a rock that rolled with them during those 40 years, and that rock was the rock of our salvation, Jesus. The presence of Christ was with the children of Israel. If you go back and read the story of their wanderings and their journey, you see that from time to time this angel of the Lord, it says, or messenger of the Lord showed up in kind of a mysterious way. And Paul here is telling us that that was Jesus. And so right there you see proof that Jesus Christ existed in pre-incarnate form. Before he was ever born in the manger in Bethlehem, he existed. He was with his people in the Old Testament, traveling with them, nourishing them, sustaining them, watching over them. By the way, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. It is. But that's another message for another time. So Paul's pointing out all the spiritual privileges and advantages that the children of Israel enjoyed Unfortunately, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. God was displeased with them, resulting in severe judgment. Even though they had all experienced God's blessing and his privilege, most of them, the vast, vast majority of them, ended up disqualified from entering the promised land. Tragic. Tragic. All those Advantages, all those privileges squandered through rebellion in the desert. Their newfound freedom from Pharaoh and Egypt squandered, abused. They displeased the God who had set them free and ushered them into freedom, and they paid a dear price for it. It says they were overthrown. If you have an NIV, it it says their, their, their corpses were strewn across the landscape in the desert. That's what the word means. They were judged. God judged them. Almost all of them. Only two men from the entire generation that left Egypt, only two men made it to the promised land. You remember their names? Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else. So that would be 99.999% of the people God was displeased with were judged, lost their lives, disqualified from entering the land of promise, and forfeiting their place in the new community that God was forming. You see, it had always been the plan of God to take his people, the children of Israel, and form them into a beautiful witnessing community that would be a light to the Gentiles. But these who rebelled against him in the desert were disqualified from that, and they would have no part in it. And the question begs to be asked, why? What did they do? What did they do that incited God's jealousy and drove him to judge them so severely? Verse 6, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now these things took place as examples for us. Learn from their screw-ups, learn from their mess-ups, that we might not desire evil as they did. There's the first thing the children of Israel did. They desired evil, they craved, lusted after evil. They became consumed by their lusts. Instead of ruling over their bodies and their appetites, they let their appetites rule them. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. So not only did they, were they consumed by their lust, but they reverted back to the old pagan practices of idolatry. 
You think about it. The Israelites get miraculously liberated from Pharaoh and from Egypt. They head out on the trail to the promised land. And the first time that their leader is gone for a few days, Moses, up in Mount Sinai, talking with God, receiving the Ten Commandments, he's away. It doesn't take him very long to go, we want to worship something. Aaron, could you make us an image of the God who liberated us from Egypt? Could you make us an image of him? We want to worship him, but we need something concrete to represent him. Will you make us an image of God? And you know what they made, right? A golden calf, which, by the way, was a common Egyptian idol, false god. So it says they were, they were wanting to worship their God who liberated them. So here you have Yahweh, the great creator, fashioned into an image of one of the false gods of Egypt. You see, they never really let go of Egypt. They never really made a clean break from the old life. That showed up in idolatry. It showed up in something else. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Consumed by lust, reverting back to idolatry, and succumbing to sexual sin. You see, included in those days in pagan idol worship was unrestrained sexual activity. And you know, don't you, that idolatry and immorality almost always went together in pagan worship. And that's what, that's what the Israelites slid back into as part of their supposed worship of Yahweh. You can read about it in Exodus 32. It's haunting. Here are God's chosen people, freshly emancipated from slavery and pagan culture. And here they are having a big, drunken party, capped off by everybody getting naked and having sex with each other. Supposedly as acts of worship to Yahweh. That's what the phrase that says they, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's not talking about playing soccer or football. It's talking about sexual play. It was a big national orgy is what it was. And God's jealousy was aroused. I mean, here he is up on the mount talking with his leader Moses, giving his law to Moses, the second commandment of which is, do not make any graven image of me, for I am a jealous God. And at the very time, the people are doing just that. And God's jealousy was provoked, and he wiped them out. He killed thousands of his own people. Their corpses strewn across the landscape of the desert. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, reminds them of what happened to the children of Israel. And in fact, he's saying to them, so you think you have freedom in Christ to go into those idol festivals, those feasts, where you used to go before Christ. You feel like you have the freedom to participate in those festivals, in the pagan temples, where all this drinking is going around on and this carousing and sexual activity going on all around you, because that was part of it. And you think that you're immune from the influence of the old life? Are you sure? Can you really be there and not end up sliding, sliding back into the old life? 
Remember what happened to God's chosen people. Be careful not to provoke the Lord your God to jealousy. Learn from their example. Well, not only did they do these things, but later God's people, the children of Israel, did two other things that provoked the Lord. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So not only were they consumed by lust and reverted back to pagan idolatry and succumbed to sexual sin, but they tested God and they complained about his provision. It says they tested God. They put him to the test, something we are expressly forbidden from doing. Remember Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Jesus says, it's written, do not test the Lord your God. That comes from that Old Testament story. Don't push God, push him, push him, push him. Don't live recklessly and expect God to bail you out and cover for you and come to your rescue. That's testing God. And that's what the children of Israel were doing. And they pushed God too far and he sent snakes to torment them. And one of the ways they pushed him and tested him was by chronic complaining. It says they grumbled. Now this is very interesting, isn't it? You've got these things that the children of Israel did. Idolatry. Sexual immorality. Complaining. We usually put those in different categories, don't we? But the Bible doesn't. It's testing God. They were whiners of the highest order, griping about almost everything. You can read about it in Exodus and in Numbers. Complaining and whining. And one of the things they complained about most was what? The food. The food. They were not content with the menu selections that they were being offered by God every day. They got sick of the manna that he was providing. Manna, manna, manna. All we ever get is manna. Doesn't this joint serve anything else? We get manna for breakfast and manna for lunch and manna for supper, manna souffle, manna burgers, banana bread. We're sick of it. We're not vegetarians. We want some red meat, for crying out loud. And they grumbled and whined and complained against Moses. Why did you bring us out here? They complained against God. Why didn't you let us stay in Egypt? They were discontent with God's provision. They felt entitled to more and better than God was giving them. Sound familiar? They blamed God for not letting them stay in Egypt. We'd rather have the stuff we had back in Egypt. The buffet back there was so much better. Fish and melons and onions and leeks and garlic. Whenever I read that, I think, how would you like to be around two million people if that was their diet? (laughs) They said, oh, that was so much better. Those were the days, weren't they? Back in Egypt. I'm thinking, don't you remember that you were tromping through the mud and straw, making bricks for Pharaoh? You were in slavery. Sometimes the past looks better than it really was. You're not fair, God. You know what they were really saying? God, you suck at doing your job. And it aroused God's anger. He got to the point where he'd had enough. You've put... 
He sent the destroying angel, the destroyer, the same angel who had destroyed the firstborn back in Egypt, now is sent to destroy his own people. Read about it in Numbers chapter 16. 14,700 of them were killed by the destroying angel. 250 of them were crushed on the spot when God opened up a crevice in the ground and swallowed them up. And it's interesting that the next verse says, and the people said, it is not good to complain. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Paul writes about this and he brings it all up because he wants the Corinthians to learn from the Israelites' screw-ups. So verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Learn from their example, guys. Learn from their story of devastation and disqualification. It was written down in the Old Testament for our benefit. Let's take advantage of that. Let's learn from what happened to them. I hope you learn so that you won't be disqualified from running your race and enjoying the promised land that God has prepared for you. That's what he's saying. So he's saying there's lessons to be learned from what happened to the children of Israel in the desert. And I got to think, what are, what are the lessons? What are they? Can we, let's put words to them. What are the lessons that we can learn from their negative, exa- negative example? I want to mention several. And the first one comes screaming off the page to me. And it's this. God is a jealous God. God is jealous for the single-hearted devotion of his people. You see that? That's what he said in the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I don't want my people worshiping other idols. When God's people flirt with the old life, flirt with the old idols, it arouses jealousy in the heart of the one who gave his life to set us free from those very idols. Maybe this is a good place to talk for a moment about idols. Idols. I think it's probably true. One man said, we're we're better at identifying idols in other cultures than we are in our own culture. And so I was in India last November, and it was easy to see the idols. I mean, they took us to a Hindu temple. And there they were, idols, hundreds of them, graven images. And there were the worshipers going in and offering their Offerings to those idols, very easy to see. But then you come back to the U.S. and it's not quite as apparent what the idols are here. And yet, they're rampant, aren't they? What is an idol? A working definition of an idol might be this. A functional substitute savior. A functional substitute savior that we've chosen to rescue us from our little hell that we've defined, that we've concocted in our own minds. This is what people do, right? Even Christians. They define hell, not as the lake of fire, but as the experience in this life that they will do anything to be rescued from. Maybe it's being ugly. Maybe it's being fat. Maybe it's feeling unloved or unappreciated or insignificant or bored. And people will say, I am not going to experience that. And they go out on a search for a substitute functional savior to rescue them from their little hell. 
And maybe it's a spouse because hell for me would be being lonely and feeling lonely and going through my life alone. And so I'm looking for a person to fill that up. Or maybe it's a job that helps me feel significant because my little hell is feeling insignificant. Or maybe, maybe hell for me that I've concocted in my mind is being bored and having a boring life. And so I've got to be entertained all the time and amuse myself to death. And so I've got to buy a big screen TV. And then when I get bored with that, I've got to buy a bigger screen TV. And then when I get bored with that, I've got to buy one that's as big as the neighborhood. Idols. Not bad things necessarily. One man said this, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. You might want to write that down. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Thinking about this reminded me of my first months and years after I surrendered my life to Christ. And I was on fire for Jesus. And for several years, I could not play tennis because tennis represented for me the old life tennis was my substitute functional savior during my teen years it was the thing that made me feel good about myself it represented my self-promotion and self-absorption and it's all about me winning coming out on top top feeling good about myself tennis is not a bad thing i can play tennis now the glory of God, but there were several years, this may sound strange to you, where I just couldn't. It's like, I can't. That's that's the old life for me. It's got that pull back into that old mindset. And I, Jesus was my treasure, and I didn't want to incite his jealousy by going back and bowing down to an old idol. You see, for Christians, we often choose idols. They're, They're not terrible, evil, wicked things. They're good things. There's nothing wrong with food. The Bible says God gives us all things for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6, right? All things for our enjoyment. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, and we think that's what's going to rescue us from our little hell that we've concocted in our minds, then that's a bad thing. That's a substitute functional savior. It's an idol. It needs to be broken. It needs to be toppled. You know, when Paul went into a pagan culture like Athens, the first thing he did when he, when he walked into town was to identify their idols. I see your idols here. And if we're ever going to topple our idols, we need to name them. We need to identify them in the same way. What are your idols? What are my idols? What is that substitute functional savior that you're hoping against hope will rescue you from your little hell? that you're investing in, you're worshiping, you're devoting yourself to, you're treasuring, you cannot imagine life apart from having that thing. And when someone else comes along or some circumstance comes along that threatens your having it, you go ballistic. That's revealing. But there's something very precious to you that might occupy that shrine in your heart. How do you know? How do you name your idol? What? How do you know what your functional substitute savior is? Here's some questions. What do you fear the most? What are you most afraid of? Oftentimes, your answer to that question will reveal the idol in your heart, what you're most afraid of. Some people have made a vow in their heart and mind, I will never go through that. I will never experience that or experience it again. And they make a vow, I will find myself a savior (laughs) to rescue me from that hell. What are you most afraid of? 
What do you fear not having? What do you long for most passionately, dream about, think about, devise ways to spend money on and spend time on and look forward to? Where do you run for comfort? When you're not feeling good or not feeling good about yourself, where do you run? Your answers and mine to those questions can reveal our functional substitute saviors that we're banking on. We're hoping against hope they'll rescue us from our little hell. We need to name it. We need to understand something today. God doesn't think those idols are worthy of your devotion. He thinks he's worthy of your total devotion and allegiance. In fact, he's convinced of it. So break your idols. Repent. Replace the substitute functional Savior with the only real Savior, Jesus, who is able to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, who will rescue you not from your own little concocted hell, but the real hell, the eternal judgment in the lake of fire, through his death, on the cross and his resurrection. God is a jealous God. Well, that was all lesson one. A second lesson from their story. Spiritual smugness will make you vulnerable. Spiritual smugness will make you vulnerable. Verse 12, Therefore let anyone thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. To you I would put it this way. When you're thinking you're immune from something, you better watch out. When you're thinking, I can handle it, I'm good, be very, very careful. Are you absolutely sure that you can take those trips to the casino and play the slots without being sucked back into the old life? Are you sure? Are you sure you can have lunch with that gal at the office without your heart being drawn towards her? Are you sure you can keep texting that guy and not form an emotional bond with him that would be outside the bounds of God's guidelines? Are you sure you can watch those kinds of movies and maintain your hot devotion to Jesus? Are you sure? I know you have freedom in Christ. Are you sure you can take just one drink, just one, and not get sucked back into the old lifestyle? and the old influences, and the old environments? Are you sure that you can go hang out with those old friends again and really, truly be a missionary to them? Maybe you can, but I'm just asking, are you sure that you're the influencer and not the influencee? Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Pride goes before a fall. The children of Israel were proud of their many advantages and spiritual privileges and their leader and all that God had done, and they fell. You're thinking, I can handle it. I can handle it. It won't affect my relationship with God. I'm good. Are you sure? Are you sure it hasn't already affected your relationship with God? Why isn't your passion for Jesus white hot like it was? What started that slide away? How come you're more excited about other things than about worshiping God? How come heaven doesn't pull on your heartstrings anymore? If you're more of an evangelist for the Buckeyes than you are for Jesus, what does that say about you? Now I'm meddling, huh? 
These are not bad things. But we need to ask ourselves these questions. Pride goes before a fall. You know, there's the big falls that we hear about, the huge implosions. Then there are the tiny, incremental little slippages that you barely notice. You know what I'm talking about? Just kind of sliding away. When did that all start? When did your passion for Christ and his word and worship and witnessing begin to wane? You know, in my experience, many, many, many times for Christians, it started when they started dabbling around in the old things again and ended up getting sucked back into the old affections, the old desires, the old loves, the old pleasures. That's why it's so critical that each of us make a clean break from the old life, a clean break like the children of Israel did not do. And by the way, that's one, one great reason to be baptized. To signify your intent and desire to make a clean break from the old life. And so you're being baptized where we read, you know, buried in the likeness of Jesus' death, I'm, I'm dying to the old life, raised to walk in a new life. There are many good reasons to be baptized. But this is a great one. To declare I'm breaking free from the old life. I need this. I need to do this for my own sake, my own spiritual walk. I know Jesus is calling me to do this out of obedience. I've trusted him. I've repented of my sins. I've embraced the cross. This is symbolically saying I'm I'm declaring my intent to die to the old life and my full allegiance and devotion is to Jesus. Not the old idols. Not the old idols. That was the old me that loved those things. Jesus is making me new on the inside. I love other things now. Through his cross and the empty tomb, I've been set free from the old life, old bondages, old allegiances, old loves. Now I'm devoted to Jesus. I'm not perfected yet, but he is transforming me by the power of the cross, and I intend to make a clean break. Some of you need to make a clean break because the old life has its tendrils, doesn't it? still got its hooks in you. Well, there's a third lesson, I think, from the sad story of the children of Israel, and it's this. Worshiping God, worshiping God and sexual sin don't go together. That's what they did. They pretended to worship God by worshiping this golden calf, and then they got drunk and started having sex with everybody. You know, we can compartmentalize our compartmentalize our lives. You know, this is my God box, and then here's my entertainment, my friends and hobbies. We can do that sometimes, but God doesn't. He doesn't compartmentalize our lives. If you can come on a weekend and worship Jesus here with your brothers and sisters and then go home and view porn on a computer screen, something is terribly wrong on the inside. They don't go together, worshiping God and sexual sin. Here's another lesson. This is a, I love this one. God promises to always provide a way of escape. There is always a way of escape from temptation and sin. This might be some of your life verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here we, we've come to it in this chapter. It's our memory verse for this week. I'd like you to uh, say it aloud with me, would you? I think it's written there and... Up on the screen, let's say this out loud. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God promises to always provide a way of escape. You say, I sinned, I messed up, I screwed up. What happened? You missed God's way of escape. It was there. God is faithful, it says, to always provide a way, an escape route. Always. You might have to look for it, but it's there. Find it. Take it. And then the last lesson I'll mention is, it just bears repeating, make a clean break. It's crucial that you and I make a clean break from the old life. That's how he finishes up this section in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, what does it say? Flee from idolatry. Make a clean break from the old life. Clean break. Renounce the old idols. Jesus, you saved me from my bondage to sin. You delivered me from the false gods that I served. May I not go back and tie myself back up to the post again in slavery. May I not create for myself my own functional substitute saviors. And if I have, would you forgive me and free me again that I might run free and praise you with my whole heart once again. I long to be back in your embrace, wholly devoted in heart, mind, and body, Jesus, to you. That's the prayer.